as your podcaster put the finishing touches on episode 30, word came down from up on high. We need to do errata. Yes! Finally! This podcaster's longtime goal would be a reality to make economics erotic again. offshore bankers do it in the shadows to broadcast that technical analysis has the best curves with those plunging chart necklines the undulating data the heaving economic activity going long treasuries wanting yield oh yeah pile that yield on yeah high and deep yeah yeah bless when the new intro copy was handed in for proofreading, this podcaster's confusion was laid bare. Arada, it's all about copy editing and mistakes. The ancient Latin word is plural for erratum, a correction of a published text. And indeed, in part three of this episode, the article under discussion was originally printed as Inflation Targeting, You Can Me Al. What? It should have been Inflation Targeting, You Can Call Me Al. And that's not all. Closely related to errata is corrigenda, a plural Latin word for a thing to be corrected, typically an error in a printed book. Whereas an erratum is, as a general rule, issued for a production error, a corrigendum is a mistake by the author. And in part three, Jeff Snyder and I introduce Al Broadus, the former Federal Reserve Bank of Richmond president. And when we segue to a quote about inflation targeting by Fed Governor Edward M. Gramlich, instead of attributing it to Gramlich, we continue to refer to Broadus. We hope you forgive the erratum and the corrigendum and how we piled them high and deep in this episode. Oh yeah. Welcome everyone to episode 30 of Making Sense, a Eurodollar University production. My name is Emil Kalinowski. I am joined by, no, joined with, joined with by Jeff, I'm, in, I'm not in my environment, right? I'm in a different environment. I don't know exactly how to introduce you. Jeff Snyder, Head of Global Research for Alhambra Investments. Well, Emil, I think as, we, as I learned last time, I'm supposed to say you've left me speechless. So you've left with this introduction, you've left me speechless, and I don't know what to say either. Thank you very much, Jeff. I appreciate that. It's very kind of you to say. <laughs> All right. Well, let's tell the audience, why are they listening today? Today, we're going to go over three articles, as we usually do with Jeff's writing. And the first set of articles, uh, for, we're going to combine two articles in the part one. And part one is going to be all about the employment situation in the United States of America. We'll see if we can branch out a little bit and talk about some other countries, because I've got some notes here about that. But the main point is, of course, the employment situation translates into consumption. And for the global audience that's watching us, the world's largest consumer is the American. So how is the employment situation in the United States? Let's check in. Jeff, 
We're going to start with an article that's called What's Job Cuts Got to Do With It? Everything. And you wrote it a week ago. So based on the employment, the payroll numbers that were coming out a week ago, is that right? Yeah, there's the payroll numbers a week ago and some other related data that's come out since then that, that, that uh, really there, there's, there's kind of a split narrative about what's going on in the employment situation. One is that it's really good and things are really positive, but yet then there's all these uh, contradictory information that says, hang on a second here. We don't really know the full complete story yet. We haven't, haven't seen all of the underlying uh, conditions for being revealed from, you know, what is essentially a massive mess and trying to sort out the mess, uh, sort out what's happened since that mess took place. And you sort of set the scene at the beginning of the article by talking about what Q1 was, what Q2 was, and Q3, and now that we're entering into Q4, uh, can you set the scene again, just for anyone that's come from Mars and is checking in, or just people who are living lives and don't, you know, they're not following the macroeconomic details day to day, but Kind of where were we in Q1, Q2, Q3, and now heading into Q4 regarding what expectations were for employment? And not just the, the economy overall, right? I mean, Q2, is that was the big quarter. That was where everything went wrong and everything went bad. And as, as weird as it is, as, as it sounds to say, Q2 almost didn't matter because we all knew it was going to be really, it was going to be bad. It was going to be the worst. It was going to be devastating, all that stuff. And in the same sense, Q3 didn't really matter either, because as soon as they started opening things up back in May, so you had May and June, which were part of the awful Q2 quarter, and then we got into Q3. So Q3 was always going to be a really good one. So you had this really bad one and a really good one. And the question is whether the good one canceled out the bad one or the, the, the good one not good enough to leave some of the bad still lingering. And all of those issues would start to get sorted out in Q4. Q4 is really where it starts to matter. And I really think it's next year before we see all of the uh, the full extent of what has happened this year it won't become clear until next year. But the narrative has always been, look, hey, it's it's really easy here. We, we shut everything down at the flip of a switch. We'll just turn the switch. We'll flip the switch back on and the economy will come roaring back to life. And that's really the that was the predominant narrative about, you know, the V-shaped recovery was it was just that easy. No, oh, by the way, the government and the Federal Reserve and all the central banks around the world were going to throw all of their massive resources into the mix too. And that would guarantee that it was just as easy as flipping a switch. We flipped it off and we flipped it right back on. So by the time we get to Q4, we're back to even again. And, and that was the idea. And you said in your article, quote, we aren't quite there yet, but it does seem uncomfortably close. So just as you said, you don't think it might be Q4, the thing that you're looking for, but you just told us maybe at the start of next year. But what is uncomfortably close? What are you looking for? Well, looking for deficit, right? If Q2 is the big downturn and Q3 was the comeback, did Q3 make up for Q2? What, what happened in the third quarter make up for what happened in the second quarter? And what we keep seeing is no it didn't even come close. I mean, yeah, the numbers were massive, especially the payroll numbers. They're, you know, positive by millions. And go back to the May payroll report. Remember, that was the surprisingly positive one. It was something like plus a million and a half and it was supposed to be minus eight million. So it was like a $10 million or 10 million payroll difference. And it was this, oh my God, the economy's really, it played right into that narrative that it really is this easy to turn everything right back on. 
And then we go through the summer and all of a sudden we start seeing some concerning things where not only is it, well, that kind of masked underlying uh, negativity and negative factors still going in the labor market, but also we have this post-July kind of hangover, slowdown, potential rollover, inflection, whatever you want to call it, where not only are we short of getting back to where we were previously, it, the the lack of V is already slowing down before we even get to Q4. In fact, in the middle of the third quarter, we started to see slowdown. And we not only see it in a lot of a broad section of economic data, we see it right in the labor market itself. I'm going to read a quote back to you about a, another party that's very much involved in following what's happening with the employment picture in the United States. And let's see if you remember who this person is. Quote, we are setting new records for job cuts, even though things have improved since the earliest days of the pandemic. Who said that and why is that important? Wasn't that Andrew Challenger, the, uh, mm -hmm. the uh, owner or, or president or of the eponymous uh, Challenger Gray uh, mm -hmm. labor, labor market data people? They, who uh, most famously, I think they're most well known for t keeping track of, uh, as they said, job cuts in the labor market, announcements and uh, actual, uh, you know, what companies are planning on cutting and how much they actually have cut. And I think that's that's really the the hangover part of the reopening was, okay, a lot of companies were really hit and they were really damaged by that downdraft in Q2, and they only got, you know, they partially made up for it in Q3, but then. They were kind of hanging on, you know, hanging in there, hoping that this V-shaped narrative actually becomes V-shaped reality, you know, hang, not, not laying off as many workers as they probably should have given the, level, the, the, the lower level of revenue coming into their firms. And so there was always that potential that if the V doesn't develop quickly enough, it doesn't go back to, you know, doesn't get us back to close to a normal again, there'd be another round of bloodletting because companies that were hanging on, hoping for full recovery very quickly, the flip of a switch, realized that, you know, it's not a flip of a switch. This is a longer term problem. I need to start reorienting my own business to this different reality than what I've been expecting for the last six months. And that's what the challenger data is starting to show is that some of these companies are saying, look, we've been, we've been hanging in for six months thinking the V is going to happen. But, you know, since the summertime, we're starting to get a little bit nervous and we're going to start thinking ahead toward really doing some more towards um, balancing our revenues and costs. That's right. And so we have a few data points that can confirm your concerns. We have, as we just discussed, the Challenger Gray comments. But just a few days before that, uh, in Spain, the government extended their national furlough program to January of 2021. And in Britain, uh, their furlough program is ending at the end of October. And I will, I don't know what, I will eat something, whatever. I'm not wearing a hat, but if I had a hat, I'd eat it. That they will also extend their furlough program. France has already extended their furlough program to 2022. Can you imagine, Jeff? So, <laughs> we, yeah, it, they did it before, but, you know, the, I'm, I'm sure that Spain, Britain, is seeing something in their data causing them to think about or actually extend their furlough programs. And uh, I think we're seeing something similar in the United States. And you brought that up in this article with the Bureau of Economic Analysis and personal income. And uh, Jeff, I'm looking at it. If 
And if I'm looking at it or hearing about it from CNBC, I'm told the personal income is higher in August than it was in March. Home run, game over, free, wonderful. That's better, right? Good. And that's true. It's it's absolutely true. The personal income is, goes up, but it's why personal income com- goes up and from what source. And the answer is that it's government payments. So the government has paid more out than the deficit in, in income has produced. But as we know throughout history and economic history in particular, that um, consumers respond to, again, the permanent, hin- permanent income hypothesis, which is essentially if you get a short-term windfall, you're going to view it very different than a permanent income stream from labor and work. And what we've seen is exactly the opposite. The government, as you pointed out, not just in the U.S., but across the world, sees this private shortfall in income and labor, or income from labor, and is saying, you know, we need to do something about that because we don't think it's going to come back anytime soon. In fact, uh, income from private sources, especially income from labor, since March hasn't come back much at all. In fact, nowhere near what we would expect, given the idea that it was easy to turn this stuff back on. And, and the, the, the furlough programs you mentioned, Emil, are essentially, I think, government starting to, to, to cater to this reality that it wasn't as easy as flipping a switch. And I think they, everybody hoped that it was. And it was almost like a fingers crossed strategy, right? It was like, mm-hmm. you know, maybe we can just get back to work and everything. we'll just reopen everything and everything just goes right back to normal. We hope that's the case. But now over the summer, reality is setting in that that was never going to be the case. Now, what do we do about it? What, what do we do about it? One of the things governments do is they simply throw money at it. But just throwing money at it through furlough programs, unemployment payments, or even the helicopter payments we got in the United States isn't the same thing as labor income. It's just not. And that's why you see, you know, yes, spending has come back more than income has, but that's, that's government payments. But it hasn't come all the way back either. And the way a lot of businesses are, are responding to this, this spending is they're viewing it as artificial too, which is why they're not investing. So we have this economic shortfall that for the last six months has been sort of papered over by cash from the government, but it still, is, it still hasn't produced the V-shaped narrative, at least the original V-shaped narrative, and it's leading us into a second kind of narrative. And in your article, and the the graph that I'm showing it right now for our YouTube audience is of personal income and spending, as you were just talking about. That's that's the key that translates into the global economy. And you show three lines. The first one is personal income nominal, and that includes the government stipends, not stimulus, as you say, stipends. And then we see real personal income excluding those transfer receipts and real personal consumption expenditures. And the problem is, as you write in this article, the problem is that the consumption, if we're interested in economic activity, the consumption resembles real personal income excluding transfer receipts. Does that mean, Jeff, that these stipends, they're being saved rather than spent? They're not really stimulus. Right. That's that, and that's kind of what you see throughout economic history. Whenever these kinds of stipends show up, that's really really how consumers, you know, they, they react to the stipends as, as a windfall, right? It's, you know, if things were good, I'm sure they would spend them. But it's, it's kind of contrary. It's almost a paradox that when things are bad, they tend to save them because things are bad, right? That's, that's rational behavior. 
And that's really the, the point here. It's not stimulus because the, the government stipends don't change the underlying perception of the economic reality. And consumers draw their perceptions of economic reality from the labor market. And that's rational behavior, too. It doesn't matter how much stipend the government pays you. I want to know if I'm going to have a job in a year. And if I don't, if I'm even a little bit concerned, I don't have a job in a year, I'm going to save as much money as I can because that's a real possibility now. It doesn't even matter if I'm never laid off. So long as I perceive that there's some level, some significant level of uncertainty in the labor market, that's what I'm going to do. And it's rational behavior. And it's nothing the government can do to overcome that kind of rational behavior because the economy itself, the private underlying economy itself is what matters. And everything that we're seeing from the labor market data to job cuts and everything else, even jobless claims, what they're showing is that consumers have every, every reason to be uncertain and un, you know, anxious about their own personal situation because it's, it hasn't been as easy as turning everything back on. In fact, the level of the deficit that's been left over since March is enormous already. And yes, it does appear to be the recovery, the reopening rebound does appear to be slowing down over the last couple of months too. You mentioned the labor market in your answer there. So let's segue to your next article, which is continuing the same story. And it's about the labor market. And the article is called Who's Negative? The Marginal American Worker. And interested listeners and viewers can see that Alhambra Investments. And it was posted on October 2nd. Jeff, you start out by talking about the two kinds of surveys that the, uh, let's see, the Bureau of Labor Statistics does. And you honed in on labor force participation because September 27, 2020 delivered a remarkable number regarding labor force participation. Yeah, the labor force level dropped by a significant amount. I believe it was almost 700,000, which, I mean, that's abnormal even in the context of the last dozen years where the labor force participation has been, in, has been the enormous problem in the economy. But 700,000 also in the context of what's supposed to be reopening, it's a huge slap in the face. It's like, look, the labor market and people in the labor market are supposed to be seeing reopening, rebound, positivities, massive payroll numbers telling them things are going well. And for that many to fall out of the labor force in September suggests that, again, as we've been saying, you know, things might have slowed down way before the finish line all the way back in July. And the perception of that in the, in the labor force itself is that, yeah, maybe there's some validity here. The V is not shaping up as V-like as we would like. And that's why this unusually large drop in the labor force is so you know, alarming and concerning because it tells you that at the margins of the U.S. labor market, laborers themselves are alarmed and concerned that, they're, no, that they're, they're, they're telling the BLS in such large numbers they're not even looking for work. Let me pull up the graph so that we can put some numbers to this. Uh, so you're showing since 2007 the change in the labor force level, and you've highlighted in red a few of the worst months that we've seen over the last 13 years. But Jeff, wait, before I even get to that, please tell the audience, should we even be seeing a drop in the labor force in a recession? Is that what we always see in recessions? 
Well, yeah, I mean, that's the, you know, the labor force participation problem is something that's relatively new. In fact, it's brand new if we consider 2008 forward as a single period in history. Every post-war recession didn't matter how bad, like, you know, go back to 1981-82, for example, which was one of the worst up until 2008, the labor force still grew because you don't stop looking for work. Maybe you're unemployed and you go into the unemployment rate, the, the part, you know, you say to the BLS, I'm unemployed, but you don't stop looking for work because you believe, hey, it's a recession. It'll be over with soon enough and I'll go back to work. I'll find a job. It sucks right now, but I, I'm still in the labor market because I believe things will come back. That all changed in October of 2008. And again, October of 2008, what happened in October 2008 that would so change the labor market that the labor force itself, the dynamic in the labor force changed for the first time since the Great Depression. It was a monetary event. It was a major break in the economy because of the global financial crisis. And what happened since then, or again for the first time, the labor force actually shrank since between October 2008 and I believe it was the middle of 2010, almost 2 million people left the labor market. That wasn't because of, you know, they were aging baby boomers who were retiring. It wasn't because of fentanyl got discovered or people were using heroin or all of these ridiculous R-star excuses that economists have tried to come up with ever since to explain the participation problem. It's a macro thing. Global financial crisis back in 2008 broke the economy in a way that we hadn't seen. And so when we ever see, when we see the labor force drop like this, it's laborers and workers in the economy actually telling you, deflation, deflation. This is a deflationary macro thing that we're, we're seeing. And so not only has that become more common since 2008, but again, the context of the economic rebound since March, we shouldn't be seeing this. We shouldn't be seeing a sizable decline in the labor force when everything is supposed to be moving rapidly forward. And what that's saying is that, you know, the marginal American workers is thinking, you know, 2008, 2009 again, that this is you know, there's something wrong here where I'm not, I'm not, I'm going to give up even looking for work. I may not be employed, but I'm no longer looking for work either. And so now I've pulled up the graph showing the change in labor force uh, participation in the United States. Let me just put some numbers to it. The worst month of the 2008-2009 crisis, 767,000 people left the labor force. Then in October 2013, we had 1 million leave due to the government shutdown. I guess they happen all the time. I said the government shutdown, but who knows which one? The October 2013 one. October 2017, a pair of hurricanes arrived back to back, basically, and we saw 830,000 people leave the labor force. Then, during this corona government shutdown crisis, we blew those records out of the water. Okay, makes sense. But as you've been saying, why in the world in September? And what was the September number, Jeff? I believe it was uh, 695. 695. So, I mean, it was almost the worst month of 2008, 2009. Mm -hmm. In September 2020, mm -mm. when the economy is supposed to be rip-roaring on its way back. Again, mm -hmm. the, the major overall theme that the V-shaped was easy. We flip the economy off, we flip it right back on, and everybody goes right back to the, where they were. And over time, especially through the summer after July and August and September, we're starting to see all of these signs that, number one, it wasn't so easy to turn everything back down. And number two, we're slowing down. 
way, way short of the finish line, which creates all sorts of problems for not just Q4, but really going into 2021. And then again, Emil, getting back to the data you pulled up from Spain and, and France and all the places in Europe, not just Europe, but Asia too, what governments are starting to realize too is that they had hoped that everything would go right back to normal, but they're starting to prepare for this situation, the more likely situation that it's, it's going to be a long haul. Jeff, we're running a little bit long in this segment, so let's just wrap it up by talking, if you want to, or you can go macro, which I think you just sort of did right now, but uh, it's one thing to be employed, it's another thing to be working a number of hours, right? And so you brought that up in this article that we're talking about, who's negative, the marginal American worker, and you talked about total hours worked. What did you see there? Hey, we're still seeing a large shortfall in hours. So even though if, you know, if we don't see the same amount of, of, of uh, workers have been laid off, some of the workers who are employed aren't working the same number of hours as they used to. And I'm not talking about full-time, part-time. They may still be being paid on a full-time basis, but they're simply not putting in the same number of hours because there's not that number of hours to be worked. And in the, the BLS report, the number they have an index for total hours across the private economy. It had contracted year over year at almost 8% rate, which if, it, if this had happened in September, if this September number had happened during 2008, 2009, it would have been the second worst on record. So you, sh- you can't have the second worst. I mean, you shouldn't have the second worst number of hours. What would have been the second worst during the Great Recession during what's supposed to be an amazingly awesome rebound, right? It, it's, it's, it, it, there's you know, something's missing here. What's missing is that it was never going to be as easy turning things back on. And since that's, I think that's really starting to dawn across most of the people, most of the public and most of governments and even some markets, everybody's starting to focus on, okay, it wasn't so easy. The first V narrative didn't work out. Now what? What, what comes next? I'm joined by Jeff Snyder, head of global research for Alhambra Investments. You can find his weekly essay at Real Clear Markets. And today's essay is a fantastic one about digital currencies and about hope and the future and decentralized finance. And I can't even say decentralized finance, but Nick Black of Crypto and Coffee can. And so next week, I think you're going to be on his show and maybe you'll be discussing this article. So everyone read that article and join the Nick Black and Jeff show next week. Um, Jeff, let's segue to your next article because you were just talking about markets. What do markets think about where we are in this transition from terribly down, terribly up, and now where are we going? And one of the key markets that we always talk about on this show is the U.S. Treasury market. And one of those places where we can kind of get a sense, one of the many of what's happening, is the positioning of traders, speculators. And you talk about that in your article posted on the 5th of October at Alhambra Investments. It's called COT Blue, OMG, the 30s. Jeff, the 30-year U.S. Treasury is at 1.58% as of yesterday. That's because the Fed is printing, uh, the government is spending, and therefore the only way, the only place for bond yields to go is up. 
Yeah, right. It's the shifting narrative, right? The original thesis was that it was really easy to get the V. You just turn everything back on. Everybody goes back to normal. Now it's dawned over the summer that, okay, it wasn't so easy. Now we're going to need more government stimulus. And so supposedly everybody's happy that there's going to be more government stimulus in the, in the uh, you know, the federal government's going to do something. The Fed might do more. You know, I think the number was $3 trillion more QE, whatever. I mean, throwing around these big numbers when nobody stops and thinks, well, wait a minute, stimulus was already part of the first V narrative that, you remember the Fed's QE, government spending, the helicopter payments back in April, these were all going to assure us that the original V narrative would work out. Now that it hasn't worked out, we're, we're suddenly happy that stimulus is coming again, that governments are saying, oh, by the way, we got the first part wrong, now we're going to get it right. I mean, it's what I call the QE2 syndrome. It's the idea that if, if governments and stimulus, if this stuff actually works, you don't have to repeat it. You don't have to keep doing it. But yet every time it's announced, certain part, segments of the markets, as well as almost the entire financial media, go nuts. They think this is absolutely fabulous stuff. But yet when they look at the markets themselves, especially the bond market, people say, well, wait a minute. Why aren't bond yields rising rapidly? Because they're supposed to be joining the same party that I see. The financial media is certainly happy about future QE and future government spending. Why aren't bond yields exploding upward? And that's that's really, you know, that's where you get into this changing narrative and what's really going on with this quote-unquote stimulus stuff. Well, let's look at the commitment of traders report. And uh, longtime readers and longtime listeners will note that you have kind of a back of the envelope kind of a measure, uh, a rubric. No, what is that uh, river that uh, Caesar crossed? The Rubicon. Rubicon. If you cross the Rubicon, then things start to get serious. It's time that the business end of the uh, plunger is going to be used. We're getting down to business now. And you've identified that in the, in the commit of, commitment of traders report for long-term treasuries as 800,000. doesn't have to be specific. It could be a different number. But once it crosses that mark, open interest, things start to go wrong. And so you're still seeing that. I'm pulling up the graph now. It shows yeah, long-term history. Right. It's, it's, it's really open interest really just tells you how many contracts are open, how many are, are at any one time being traded on the market, or not even traded, but how many are existing and registered with the, with the clearinghouse. And what you see is whenever you see these large amounts or spikes in open interest, it usually equates with bad things, which kind of makes sense, right? Because when you look at bond futures and what they're really used for is hedging. So you would expect that if things are going to be bad and the market starts to think, well, maybe there's some bad stuff out there, I might need to put on some hedges. One of the hedges, a popular hedge and one that makes sense is you're going to be long or at least in some manner participating in the treasury market hedged some way against something that you perceive to be potentially a big negative. And it's, 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 it's pretty much, you know, every time you see open interest spike, you know, go back to March of 2020, for example, that big spike up to almost a million and a half contracts in long bond futures. Again, the worst times bring out lots and lots of hedging. But that's usually the deflationary stuff, not the inflationary stuff. That's the bad stuff, the euro dollar stuff that we always talk about. So if, if the bond market is seeing this inflationary recovery, good times ahead scenario, at least in long bond futures, what we're seeing is a, a hell of a lot of open interest would suggest uh, maybe not. Maybe there's still lingering concerns, maybe not even lingering concerns, but really serious concerns about what the next quarter, two quarters in the future 
really do look like? Maybe it's not, maybe the stimulus stuff isn't really convincing. But Jeff, does it matter? Open, in, what is open interest? It's uh, the number of market participants that are either long or short. So does that matter whether they're long or short or who is long or short? Right now, as you mentioned in the article, we have record short interest by a particular group. So that's negative for bonds, no? Well, yeah, and it matters who's doing what and where. Because remember, these are markets, these are vast. There's all sorts of different players who have all sorts of different uh, incentives to act in these marketplaces. Dealers, for example, most of the time dealers, their interest is just to take the other side of a market because they're, they're trying to match between a long or a short or whatever. And so a dealer might be in the marketplace long or short, and it has nothing to do with being with intending to be long or short. They're just making markets. And so you know, when you get down into the details about which group is doing what, it matters what group is doing what at what times, but it maybe it doesn't necessarily matter in which position the overall market is taking because not all of the entire, not all of the whole market is taking a position to take a position, you know, to be specifically long or short. But as you mentioned, these leveraged money speculators, which are, you know, these are a segment of monetary uh, futures market participants who have identified themselves to the CFTC as leveraged money speculators. They have been absolutely, unbelievably, obscenely short the <laughs> treasury bond market, really going back to the beginning of this year. And it's gotten, it's gotten worse since around June. It's, it's, it's in a massive short position. And the reason is, I think, you know, especially when you look at when that short position really started to materialize in June of 2019, these, these uh, speculators are betting on the Fed because June of 2019 was when the Fed said, yeah, we're not going to do rate hikes. We're not going to do rate pause anymore. We're going to start with rate cuts. And so ever since the, the idea of rate cuts have become more a, a realistic position than they actually happened, these speculative leverage money positions have gone further and further short because remember, it wasn't just rate cuts. Rate cuts then became, after September of 2019's repo mess, rate cuts became repo operations. Then they became not QE. And then not QE turned into March, after March 2020, QE6, which was the massive stuff. And then all these other market support things. And so these leverage money speculate. The more the Fed does, the more they short the long bond position. And, and, and that hasn't resulted in the long bond yields going up, the prices going down, quite the contrary, because the Fed is never right. <laughs> when the Fed is doing something, that's usually because deflation already exists. Let me draw that out some more. In the graph that we're looking at right now on, uh, on YouTube, we're looking at data that goes all the way back to 2010. And there are a few ravines here of traders going short. And then you overlay that with the U.S. Treasury, the 30-year. The and what do we see, Jeff, in the first two instances when every, quote-unquote, everyone went short compared to when everyone, their mother and their grandmother and their neighbors have gone short this time regarding yields? Well, usually, I mean, there can be a temporary uh, backup in yields, which is, I mean, is that is that necessarily a short to winning the argument or is that just the way the markets work because nothing ever goes in a straight line? But overall, what you see is that after these periods of massive shorting, yields tend to go lower. They tend to be lower after all because 
you know, the short position base, if the short position, if I'm right, it's based on what the Federal Reserve is doing and taking a central banker's word, then that's always going to, that's always going to put you in the wrong position. So it doesn't matter if shorts are shorting the market because they think Jay Powell will be right. Jay Powell's always wrong. And so that's, that's usually what ends up happening. And when you see this massive short position and leverage money speculators now in 2020 going to an obscene level, I would look at that and think, Man, there's a real potential that the yields are going to snap lower once the short covering actually does start. Everybody's going to is going to fly out of the short. They're going to have to start covering their positions, and it, there's real potential here that yields go way down for no other reason than cover short short covering. The thing that stands out to me in this graph is that after this deeply short positions previously, we did see some. Uh, some of the yields rising, but we don't see any of that despite everyone else ever piling into the uh, short position this time. It seems as if we're very in a very, well, in a depression, deflationary sense. And that's how you ended the article. You said, quote, bottom line, yields can and maybe even will go higher than when they, than where they are now, but that's just markets. It's not even reflation and you can forget inflation. Yeah, it's the broader market position beyond leverage money speculators. Because I think there are a lot of market market participants, even in the futures market, who are saying, I'll gladly take the other side of your short trade. I'm happy to do it. I mean, you want to give me free money, but betting on Jay Powell, I'm, I'm more than fine with doing that. And I think that's why you've seen yields kind of move sideways in a very narrow range, a suspiciously narrow range, because even though leverage money players are short, 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 Everybody else is saying, we're not betting on Jay Powell. That's a losing bet. I mean, look at where rates are now. Supposedly inflation, treasury market crash, bond routes, all these. We've been hearing about these things for over a decade, and they never happen. And the reason they never happen is because the central bank is all smoke and mirrors. It's a puppet show. There's nothing real there. So, you know, getting into the context of what we're talking about here the shifting V narrative, what used to be, hey, it's really easy, everything goes right back to normal, and stimulus is going to guarantee that, to now, well, it's not so easy, it's not going to go right back to normal, but stimulus is going to help? I mean, that does, doesn't that, does, it sounds absurd, it sounds insane. Stimulus didn't work the first time, now we're admitting it didn't work the way we thought it was going to work, but that's supposed to now lead us into the promised land? The same thing that didn't work is going to, again, I call it QE2 syndrome for that reason. Because back in 2010, it was already clear things weren't going the right way. And if you had to do a second QE, obviously it's because the first one didn't work the way you said it was going to work. And that to me is a is a different realization than what what's, what takes place in most, you know, obviously the stock market and other places, especially in the financial media where stimulus is always talked about in the most glowingly positive terms as if this is all just really good. When you step back and look at the last 12 years of labor market shrinkage and everything else and say, it didn't work. None of it worked. It never works. It never does what it's supposed to do. Jeff Snyder, Chief Investment Officer of Alhambra Investments. You can find him on Twitter at Jeff Snyder underscore AIP. You can find him on Real Vision, which was a 90-minute interview with Steve Van Meter this week. And also, uh, you were on Dr. Dark's podcast and so people can listen to you there as well. Jeff, let's transition now. We were discussing the employment situation, which way the economy is going, what do markets think, and now we're going to discuss 
who are we relying on to try to help us get to that recovery? And we're going to talk about it through the lens of something called inflation targeting. And that's what you called the, uh, the article. It's at Alhambra Investments, posted on October 6th. It's supposed to be called inflation targeting. You can call me Al, but the call is missing. So it's called you can call like the stimulus is missing, right? <laughs> what what is the metaphor there? That's right. You did it on purpose. What is missing? We're we're talking about forward guidance. We're talking about inflation symmetry, and average inflation, and now inflation targeting. And I'm a little confused. What is is there a difference? What is inflation targeting? Well, I mean, yeah. Before getting to that, let, you know, let's reinforce our message here, which is okay. The V didn't work the way before we wanted to, but now the V is going to work the way we wanted to because of more stimulus. And so, okay, let's let's look at the stimulus that we're supposed to be depending upon that's going to now fix the stimulus that didn't work. And it's this inflation targeting nonsense and in addition to more QE, more government, all these other things. And specifically inflation targeting, again, going back to August, Jackson Hole, Jay Powell said, we, we undertook this exhaustive, extensive review of our monetary policy situation and the economic situation overall. Yes, we said there were transitory factors holding back inflation all these years. We were wrong. So they didn't say sorry, but they, it was implicit in there that, yeah, they weren't transitory factors after all. And the inflation that we kept talking was right around the corner. Guess what? It wasn't right around the corner. So now we need to fix this with the stimulus, this inflationary policy, which is we call average inflation targeting, which means simply that the Federal Reserve is going to, you know, gosh darn it, we're really good at fighting inflation and the public really believes that we're really good in fighting inflation. And that's the reason we didn't get any inflation. So we are going to promise you right here and now the Federal Reserve is not going to fight inflation. We're not going to do it. We're going to let the inflation mark, you know, we're let consumer prices run hot for a prolonged period of time because that's what the economy needs to 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 make up for all of this lost time and lost economic growth that we that we told you happened but really didn't happen. So that's what average inflation targeting is. is we're no longer being an inflation fighter. And average inflation, to be more specific, average inflation is building on inflation targeting and it was targeting a specific number. Is, is that right, Jeff? The Federal Reserve was after a certain number and there was a big discussion about whether we should even tell the public whether it's a number that we're after. Yeah, inflation targeting is nothing new. The, the, the idea itself has been in practice for three decades. Canada, New Zealand, I believe the Bank of England all transitioned mm -hmm. to explicit inflation target in the early 90s. And that provoked a pretty serious contentious debate throughout that decade about whether you know, not just the United States, but other central banks around the world should follow their example because they said, well, it worked. It seemed to work. I mean, this was the euro dollar era and they don't they never paid attention to the euro dollar. So everything central banks did seem to work so long as the euro dollar cooperated. That's really what happened. But at the time, they thought, well, you know, should we adopt an inflation targeting uh, uh, stance? explicit inflation targeting stance in the middle 1990s. And there was debate up and down and they never really could settle on a consensus because it didn't really seem like it was a, it was something that was necessary because again, the great moderation or what Stock and Watson called random good luck, the Euro dollar system moving forward made it seem like they didn't really need to change anything because everything was great. Why bother doing this kind of thing? Because 
know, everything we do seems to work. And by the way, the media tells everybody everything we do seems to work. And since then, I believe a few more central banks have adopted explicit targets, right? The PBOC, I believe, is 3%. The ECB, which one, what is that? Is that 2%? And I think yep. the Bank of Japan is 1% or close to. Do I have those right? Bank of Japan was 1% for a long time, but after QQE, they raised it to 2% because mm -hmm. they, got, they got way ahead of themselves and now they can't even hit 1%. So they've actually done what all the scholars that have lined up against inflation target said was, listen, you're playing with fire here. This is all about credibility. Once you establish a target, what happens if you don't hit it? What happens if the public, you say, I'm going to do this, and then you can't do this? And that was really the argument against it. And I think that's what, what kept the uh, explicit inflation target from becoming a reality at the Federal Reserve until January of 2012 was the idea then back of people's mind. I mean, look, again, central bankers know they know nothing about the monetary system. They don't really, it's, it's all a mystery to them. And it's always in the back, especially Alan Greenspan's mind, who said, you know, maybe that's going to be a problem. And so, yeah, maybe we shouldn't be very explicit about some of these things. Maybe we should ride this wave of ambiguity, stay in the gray area, pretend we're great monetary stewards, and kind of let the self-fulfilling prophecies do all our work for us. We can just take credit for every success that there is because there's lots of successes to take credit for, and that will build our credibility. But as soon as, you know, the old adage, you know, it's better to stay, uh, to remain silent than to open yourself and what is it? Uh, better to remain silent and be thought a fool than to open your mouth and remove all doubt. That's what an explicit inflation target has been. Central bankers stayed silent and said, you know, our policies are working, just take our word for it. But as soon as you put a number, you slap a label on it and say, this is our policy, it becomes very obvious when you don't have a candle on what you're doing. Therefore, you're no longer just thought powerless. You're showing everybody that you're powerless. It's my sense that central bankers, at least in America, were worried that they didn't know exactly how the monetary system worked up to and including Greenspan. But thereafter, I think that's gone. I think they were confident. Uh, but that's just my perception. But speaking of Greenspan, there was an individual that was a member, I think, of the FOMC, and I want to dissect a quote of his, and he's, he makes an interior title. This is Al Brodus. And I want to dissect a quote of his like a classroom frog. But before we do, who was Al Brodus? He was the president, long, long time president of the Richmond Federal Reserve. And he was actually a very influential member, a very long time uh, inner, inner sanctum kind of guy who was influential, uh, involved in a lot of the key conversations about not just inflation targeting, but everything the Federal Reserve did. So Al Broadus was a guy that, that, that they all looked to and they all paid attention to. Okay, so here's the quote. Let me, okay. One can also rationalize inflation targeting through another form of economic reasoning. Some years ago, many believed, along with Milton Friedman, that stabilizing the growth of the money supply would lead to stable prices. Jeff, does stabilizing the growth of money supply lead to stable prices mean anything more than that? That's pretty simple, right? It should, right? I mean, if, if money growth is predictable and money demand is predictable, then stabilizing money supply within the context of money demand should lead to not just stable prices, but a stable economically equilibrium, as economists like to say. It should lead to the growth at, the, growth at economic potential, not above it, not below it, but somewhere near economic potential. 
But the problem is, as we just stated, is <laughs> if you don't know money demand or you don't know money supply, then you have an unstable situation where you can't predict how things are going to go. And that can lead to all sorts of imbalances in prices as well as economy. And now, this is so this is the part that I want to dive into, continuing with that quote. He says, quote, but this approach is now generally discredited because shocks in the demand for money. What shocks in the demand for money? What was he talking about there? What he was talking about there was the great inflation, the 1970s. And so what they kept finding was that the demand for money was much higher than the, the explicit supply of money. And the reason was, as you and I well know, Stephen Goldfeld's work of miss, the missing money was that monetary evolution had created new forms of money outside the traditional definitions. And so when you know they looked at these M1, M2 statistics that, 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 that they had been using throughout the 70s, they thought, we're missing something. Money supply growth is not explaining why we're getting out of control inflation. There's money supply growth taking place, really going haywire outside of our official perception. And so what Al Broadus was saying is that, look, if you don't know how to measure money supply or have a good idea of what's going on in money demand, if you take a money supply kind of policy, targeting money supply rather than targeting inflation, you could lead yourself down a tremendously bad path because you don't really know what you're doing. And therefore, you have no idea how it's going to work out because you're missing a huge part of the picture. Let me continue with the quote. But this approach is now generally discredited because of shocks in the demand for money, thank you, Jeff, and an unstable transmission mechanism. What is an unstable transmission mechanism other than the one I have in my Camaro? It's basically what we just said. It's, look, if you don't know how money supply and demand work, then we don't know how money transitions into the – how it gets transmitted into a real economy. And if you have an unstable transmission mechanism because you don't really know what's going on, it can lead you to any kind of bad outcomes, right? It could lead you to a position like the 1970s where inflation just gets out of control and you have no way of control, no way of getting it back under control. But the, the other scenario, obviously, at the other end of the spectrum, which, by the way, the Fed has never really concerned itself about since the 1970s, is what if the money supply gets out of control in the opposite direction, which is too little money supply? Then you would have unstable transmission into the economy in terms of deflation or disinflationary processes, you know, hindrances to the labor market. And that's really, I think, the overriding point, and going back to, to Al Broadus's point, is that since the 1970s, the Federal Reserve has thought of itself and made the public think of it exclusively as an inflation fighter. And the reason is, it's ironically, paradoxically, because the Federal Reserve is so bad at its job. If you go back to before the 1970s, the Federal Reserve before, you know, from the 1930s, 40s, 50s, and 60s didn't care a whit about inflation. They only cared about deflation. And the reason was, obviously, 1929, 30, 31, and 32. So we had this deflation, massive deflationary event that the Federal Reserve was powerless to do anything about and got criticized heavily for. In fact, they got reformed because of it. And so its entire focus was backwards on the problem that had already happened. For decades, that was the case. Monetary policy was entirely focused on preventing deflation to the point it didn't, when we got to the middle, late 1960s, inflation was already breaking out and the Fed was still thinking entirely about deflation. Well, then we had 15, 20 year period of out of control inflation that happened. The Federal Reserve looked backwards, screwed up that part too, 
And now its entire focus is about, again, the past, the big monetary problem that happened in the 1970s. And ever since the 1970s, the Federal Reserve has been focused on inflation. And then it doesn't matter that in 2008, or before 2008, in the middle 2000s, we had these deflationary pressures show up because the Fed was entirely focused on the 1970s. And so what Al Broadus was saying was that, look, we're inflation fighters. That's what we do. And so if we don't know anything about money and we don't know about the, the way money supply actually works, then maybe you know, inflation targeting isn't such a great idea. It sounds very similar to the idea of generals always preparing to fight the last war. And then you conclude your article here with a question. Actually, you don't conclude it, but it was in the middle of your article, but I thought it was a great way to conclude it. Wouldn't it be simpler to just intervene directly in the monetary system instead of doing all the inflation targeting and the forward guidance? Why go through all the bother with such emphasis on expectations, the inherently dirty and unstable business of emotion and manipulation of interpretations? Because they can't. Yeah, they have no other choice, right? And that's really what we're talking about. That's, that is the stimulus. The stimulus is getting the public to believe it's stimulus. It is absurd and ridiculous as that sound. I, I, wish, I wish I was joking. That's the way the Federal Reserve actually works. They don't know how to intervene in the monetary system. And even if they did, the, the transmission mechanisms are completely beyond their grasp and completely beyond any DSG model's ability to monitor. So what do you do? You have to make people believe that you're stimulative. And if they act in the way that, that, that they think you're stimulative, then it becomes stimulus. But, you know, again, the inflation fighting, you know, your, your, your analogy is exactly right. It's all, they're always looking backwards. They're always thinking inflation is the biggest problem. They're not prepared for the situation that we're in, as if you couldn't tell by this last decade of constantly getting everything wrong. They're always worried about, to, you know, always worried about inflation breaking out, always telling the public to be worried about inflation breaking out as if that's the biggest problem we're always facing. But the, the Federal Reserve is always in danger of doing too much inflation. Well, you know, earlier in the second part of our uh, discussion, you said that government can't really do anything. Well, perhaps not directly, but I think indirectly they could by being forthright. Yeah, but, you know, that's the thing. You know, in, an expect, in a purely expectations regime, what you just said can't happen, right? Because as soon as you admit that you're wrong, you're undermining your own credibility. And that's what Al Broadus was saying. Again, that's what all the scholars who argued against inflation, inflation targeting were saying, is that in an expectations-based regime, you always have to be able to say, I'm right, I know what I'm doing, because you have to depend upon credibility. And if you implement a specific inflation target and can't meet it, you're undermining your own credibility. And you need credibility because that's all you got. And so that's really where we are now. And people think, well, why aren't interest rates flying higher because of all this quote-unquote stimulus? That's the reason right there. It's what El Broadus was saying, is what the scholars were saying in the 90s, is that, look, they've undermined their own case. They should have shut up and, and, and let people think they're powerless rather than put an explicit inflation target out there and remove all doubt. That's what they've done over the last you know, eight years and even longer, is they've removed all doubt that this is all just smoke and mirrors. Really nothing behind it. Jeff, I hope you have a great weekend. Yeah, you too, Emil. Take care.